Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. You know, and I think like in those trials, it's important to emphasize that often the scientists, you know, they give them the open label placebos, but they also then give them, you know, an hour's kind of course saying like, this is how the mind-body connection works. This is why we would expect placebo pills to actually relieve your pain. And then they go away and actually they do show amazingly improved outcomes based on the combination of the ritual of taking the pill and the knowledge. So, you know, that that seems very strong evidence to me that actually changing our conscious thought processes can then have meaningful outcomes for our health. Welcome to Men's Health Australia's Strength Sessions podcast, a forum in which we talk to men from all walks of life who found the strength within, stomp on adversity and achieve their goals. Whether you're looking for an edge in the gym, at work, on the sporting field, or just want to level up across the board, the men featured here can help unlock your potential. I'm Editor-in-Chief Ben Jody. Do you expect a lot of yourself, your partner, your future and your life? According to a growing body of scientific research, you should. In today's episode, David Robson, author of The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life, explains why positive expectations can set you up for positive results. Drawing on cutting-edge neuroscience research, Robson breaks down why harnessing the power of your body's placebo response can give you an intrinsic advantage in challenges you face at work, in the gym, on the sporting field, in your relationships, even in your leisure time. Have we raised your expectations of today's podcast? Well, that just might be the point. Hey, David. How are you going? Yeah, not bad. Yeah, how about you? Uh, very well, thank you. I just I want to ask you what your expectations of the day are. Uh, right, yeah. You know, um, I've got a slight cold, so I'm trying not to kind of catastrophize that, and I'm trying to tell myself that, you know, I'll heal quite quickly, basically. So, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I just... You know, today's quite a mundane kind of day for me, really. So I don't have, like, great expectations, but just kind of, you know, trying to tell myself I have all the resources to kind of do what I want to do, even if I am feeling a bit under the weather, kind of. Yeah. That's, yeah, how I would see it, yeah. Okay. It And it sounds like you're drawing on some of the practical applications of your book in, in that. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I use them all the time. Yeah, it's, I mean, like, I don't think I could have spent so long researching it without them applying it in some way to my life but actually you know every single chapter like all that I've written about I use myself and that's quite important for me to make sure that like I'm not just writing about kind of abstract academic ideas but that I actually check that they were practical to use you know. Yeah well I, I read the book over, over the weekend and I thought it was wonderfully written in, in terms of its accessibility and so forth and I also was struck by just how men's health it felt and I know, obviously, you write health and science for a number of publications, including BBC. But yeah, those kind of block, breakout boxes at the end were, were so, you know, men's health is always about trying to apply the stuff like theory after. And yeah, so it it's, feels made for this audience more than any other book that I've, I've read for a while. So 
I don't oh, know. That's really that's brilliant to know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really good to know. I mean, definitely like those boxes at the end. It's like I wanted to have like a narrative within the chapters, but then mm. you know, then a lot of the practical kind of implications could be lost. So I thought, you know, have that right at the end where people can easily like refer back to it. You know, yeah. remind themselves again and again. Yeah. Okay, so. In the book, obviously, you talk about um, the brain as a prediction machine um, that jumps to conclusions and anticipates outcomes. Obviously, this has been clearly demonstrated in, in medicine with nocebo effects. Um, but as you argue and demonstrate in the book, um, you know, we can harness expectation effects in so many areas of our lives. Were you surprised where you ended up, like just how, meant, how applicable it is across so many areas of our lives? Yeah, I really was. And, you know, I think this is like really cutting edge research over the last, you know, less than a decade, mostly the last five years, really, that has shown that, you know, these things that we thought were limited to the, you know, hospital setting or the doctor's surgery, that actually like placebo, nocebo type effects are just influencing every area of our lives. So, you know, throughout the day, your an expectation effect is influencing you in some way, like there's no we just can't escape that fact but what this research has done is just documented it and you know there are just so many areas um you know the fitness i think made complete sense to me the expectation effects and diet you know it's just instantly kind of appealed but i think the the one that really struck me as being like exceptional and that really prompted me to write the book was the um chapter on aging and the fact that your beliefs about you know whether aging is inevitably this kind of horrible negative decline or whether you see it also as being an opportunity for growth and for new experiences and you know that that can affect your longevity by seven and a half years I found incredible and you know it's really through all of the other expectation effects combined that I describe in the rest of the book and yeah like once I had that I just felt like there's this whole narrative that needs to be told um yeah but yeah I was absolutely gobsmacked by that and then of course when I looked into it actually the mechanisms just make complete sense. Yeah. Do you feel that, um, as you say, some of the research is cutting edge. So do you feel that in terms of expectation effects, that their application in everyday life, we're still very much at the beginning of, of understanding that? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, so I would say we know enough now that there are practical, you know, strategies that anyone can use to, um, to take advantage of expectation effects I think that much you know has been established but I think you know what we really want to look into you know in the next few years is actually to understand the um the kind of individual differences I think this is really important so you know how can we tailor these expectation effects tailor these kind of new psychological techniques for different kinds of people um yeah I think we see a bit of that with the research on the stress mindsets, you know, how you yeah. view stress is going to be, uh, actually changes the outcome of the stressful situation. And if you have a generally positive view of stress, um, then that, you know, kind of on average does help to enhance performance under pressure. So we know that, we know it has physiological effects for lots of people, like the average across the population is quite robust. Um, but I think, you know, there are going to be some people who find it harder to apply that than others, you know, yeah. so you might have to tailor the interventions, like really get to the heart of like why someone sees stress as being debilitating and work out kind of 
how you can persuade them otherwise, like what kind of small steps you can make um, that they could make within their lives to kind of test it for themselves and to prove it. You know, I think that's all, all the kind of things we want to do in the future. Yeah. I know it's obviously you state this in the book, but are you able to tell us briefly about the prediction machine theory, like what that actually Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, you know, really fashionable theory of consciousness primarily. And it's this idea that you, um, that the brain functions by constantly creating simulations of the world around it. So based on its previous experiences, you know, the context it finds itself in, it's kind of making a guess of, you know, the world and what should happen next in the next few, you know, milliseconds, seconds, you know, and then over longer time periods. Um, you know, and what what's so important here is that with our perception is actually these simulations are kind of controlling what we perceive. So they help us to make sense of ambiguous data. So much of our sensory, of the sensory information coming into our, our kind of um, bodies is ambiguous. So they're really helping us to make sense of that. Um, you know, sometimes they might kind of tune up uh, a piece of the, the kind of sensory data we're receiving, kind of making it stronger. So other times they might kind of cover up, you know, something that doesn't quite fit our perceptions. And then that is that simulation really that we see. Um, so that can explain all kinds of visual illusions, you know, um, can explain why, you know, if you're familiar with someone's voice, it's much easier to, to hear them and understand them on a crackly telephone line than if it's like a totally unfamiliar accent, you know, all of these things the prediction machine can help us to understand. But I think what's interesting to me is not just the perceptual side of things, but then those simulations that the brain is building are then directly shaping our physiology because the brain, you know, based on what it thinks, you know, is around it and how it appraises the situation and what challenges it thinks it's going to face next, it then starts to change our physiology to cope with that challenge. So you know, um, everything from changing the hormonal balance, changing the uh, hearts, you know, rhythms, um, changing the dilation of our blood vessels, raising or lowering inflammation, you know, all of these things are, are being influenced by those simulations the brain is building. Yeah, amazing. All right. Now, I guess most of the time our expectations or maybe the prediction machine simulations are unconscious. So. Is conscious recognition um, of an expectation likely to affect an outcome? So is it similar to what you talk about in the book about open label placebo still still work? Is Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a really strong, that provides really strong evidence, I think, that, um, you know, we don't need to be deceived. It doesn't have to be this purely subconscious process. Um, yeah. You know, and I think like in those trials, it's important to emphasize that often the scientists, you know, they give them the open label placebos, but they also then give them, you know, an hour's kind of course saying like, this is how the mind-body connection works. This is why we would expect placebo pills to actually relieve your pain, for example. You know, these are the physiological mechanisms. So you're giving people that knowledge and then they go away and actually they do show amazing, amazingly improved outcomes based on, the combination of the ritual of taking the pill and the knowledge. So, you know, that that seems very strong evidence to me that actually changing our conscious thought processes can then have meaningful outcomes for our health. 
Um, and actually, we see that in all of the other expectation effects I talk about. So, mm. you know, I, I mentioned this stress mindset earlier, where you see stress as being debilitating mm. or um, enhancing. You know, yeah. what the researchers do is actually mostly just educate people and say, you know, the stress response is adaptive. It evolved for a purpose. Um, but when you're feeling that, you know, your heart racing, um, that's actually because it's trying to pump like lots of oxygen to your brain to improve your thinking, you know, yeah. and just having that knowledge, you know, consciously reinterpreting the things that you're feeling without trying to change the feelings, you know, you're not trying to delude yourself into thinking like, I love being stressed, you're just telling yourself that as uncomfortable as it is, like there's a purpose to that, it's not, meant. You're, it doesn't have to sabotage your performance. And just like helping people to reinterpret that, to educating them about the potential benefits, that's enough then to see a difference in performance later on if you're doing a tough exam or public speaking, and also to see these kind of physiological changes as a result. So if you, once you learn that stress can be beneficial, it actually then the body, you know, kind of moderates its stress response a bit. So it doesn't go into full kind of fight or flight kind of panic mode, but just kind of reaches the more kind of optimum state of stress and you recover more quickly afterwards. And that's all through this kind of conscious reappraisal of what you're feeling. So absolutely, I believe like we don't need any kind of deception to take advantage of expectation effects. Yeah, I, I found that chapter on stress particularly interesting because uh, I, I have a, a uh, something to do with work that is causing me some anxiety and yeah. I immediately found myself uh, applying well, I was very heartened reading that chapter, and I ordered, I also did feel a lot better about the whole situation yeah. afterwards. And I've continually doing it since I read that chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm really glad to hear that. And you know, that's my experience too. That you know, I used to kind of have a fear of public speaking, like most people do. But um, yeah. I used to see the, um, I used to see like my signs of anxiety as being like a sign of impending failure. Like I was. It was like once I started feeling anxious, I was like, well, this is going to go badly because of that. It just has to like I should be relaxed. Um, and then, you know, reading that research is actually like, no, like, you know, your body is kind of putting you into a level of stress because it's a challenge that you want to do your best at because, it, you know, mm. it means a lot to you to kind of do well at this task. And that actually yeah. that stress response can help you. And just, you know, that realisation then just it kind of removed this whole extra layer of, layer of anxiety that I've yeah. been putting on myself. So it made me feel a lot better. And then I think it did improve my um, performance. And like you said, actually, it's something that, you know, you apply once and you see some benefits. But I think the important thing is to then continue to apply it. You know, it's like a kind of learning curve, I guess, like changing. You're not going to necessarily change your mindset 100 percent like on the first go. But actually, you know, with this learning curve, like applying it again and again, you can kind of prove to yourself that it is helping. And the more you've proven that to yourself, the better and easier it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I also found it interesting, well, this subject, I guess, as a whole, um, I remember early in my time at Men's Health, I thought about writing about the placebo effect and applying it to everyday life. But I, at that time, I didn't look into it enough. And I just assumed that it, like, I was like, how do we... How do you deceive yourself to get the full benefit? Like, and so I couldn't see how we could apply that to men's health readers. And obviously, I didn't get far enough with the story to see that that conscious recognition can be still be incredibly valuable. I guess. Mm, yeah, and exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You just talked about stress. I, there were four things that I thought um, would apply 
to a men's health audience in particular, and that one of them was stress. Uh, the other one was fitness, obviously. So I will refer to your chapter, but are you able to just tell us how broadly how expectations can help people get more out of a workout, for example? Yeah, I mean, so I think here, like the important thing to, to remember is that it's like, you know, so you're kind of setting it, you know, higher expectations, but they're still realistic, I think. Yeah. But, um, and also, like, for me, the fundamental thing is to avoid those kind of baseline negative expectations that lots of people have about fitness. And I know this was true for myself and for lots of people, but, you know, you might have had a bad experience doing like gym at school or whatever. And you kind of assume your body just isn't cut out for exercise. And, yeah. you know, some people, you know, if they have disabilities or whatever, there are reasons why exercise will be like much harder for them. But for the average person, actually, you know, there's no real reason why your body can't do exercise and why you can't enjoy it, actually. It's just, yeah. you know, it's just that you have to kind of make kind of slow and steady progress. But I think like, say for someone like myself, you know, I'd go to the gym, like I'd get really, you know, I'd be on the treadmill, kind of, you know, my heart would start racing really quickly, I'd get really out of breath, my muscles would start aching. And I would see that as proof that I just wasn't good at exercise. So I'd kind of catastrophize those sensations. And then what the research shows is that that's going to actually exacerbate the kind of um, pain that you're feeling in the workout, and it will reduce your actual physiological outcome, essentially. So I think fundamentally, like, we just have to try to you know, if you're new to fitness, you have to try to approach the gym with like a kind of more open mind mm. and to reappraise those um, sensations you're feeling when you're kind of pushing your body to the limit. So rather than seeing it as a sign of your lack of fitness, actually see it as a sign that your workout is being like super effective. Like you've achieved the point where you're strengthening your body, expanding your lungs, like strengthening your heart, you know. So it's like trying to see, see the discomfort as like the thing that you're aiming for. And I know we have that mantra like, no pain, no gain. And that's totally the same idea. But this is just actually remembering to apply it to yourself and to recognize that whatever your current state of fitness, like the fact that you're doing this, the fact that you're pushing your body like that will mean that tomorrow you'll be fitter than the day before. And to, to yeah, just recognize that, to reframe those sensations and then to just focus on the kind of um, the next steps. And the research shows that, you know, when you reframe your these perceptions in this way, like it really does help to like reduce the perceived exertion mm. that you're having. So you, you know, you can come out of the gym and you, you don't feel so exhausted, you actually feel like invigorated. And I think that's really important. You know, if you want to continue working out, you, you want to leave the gym feeling better than when you entered the gym, uh, basically. Um, and, you know, there's loads of research showing that once you do start to change your view of your body to be more positive, then actually that can have loads of benefits for the actual performance. So there was that study from Stanford that showed that, um, you know, they kind of gave people a genetic test, essentially. Mm. Uh, it's a real genetic test looking at the CREB1 gene, which is involved in endurance exercise. But, um, but they gave sham feedback to the participants. So some were told they had like a crappy version of the gene that would make their workouts harder. Others were told they had like, you know, the good variant that would make it easier. And, you know, those expectations, independently of the, the genes they're actually carrying, um, shaped their performance, their actual endurance, but also physiological markers, like the gas exchange within the lungs. And actually on mm. that particular measure, the expectations were more important than the genes. So, yeah. you know, incredibly powerful. So yeah, I'm like a 
completely think actually that you know when we go to the gym when we're working out when we're getting fit like obviously one of the main things we're doing is obviously strengthening the body but I think actually like it's also recalibrating the brain to um, get used to fitness getting used to exercise to expanding the brain's kind of idea of like what the body can achieve that's just as important um that's an essential component of the of any workout i think and yeah. i mean i could go on because there's the work on you know how you can improve it with like um visualization techniques mm-hmm. that help to recalibrate your brain's predictions of how strong you are and that can be very effective so yeah, yeah. i mean there's just a huge amount that you can do with fitness to make the whole process more rewarding more enjoyable and to boost your performance yeah all right. The, the other one that I thought would is very applicable to men's health is uh, was the weight loss kind of or dieting chapter that, yeah. and I this one I did find a little surprising in or just because I haven't read it before um, <laughs> that expectations uh, well the indulgence mindset I hadn't really come across the indulgence mindset as something that we could use yeah are you able to explain that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, this is what I loved about that chapter is it's actually drawing together, you know, loads of different pieces of research from, you know, across science. So you've got studies of amnesics who forget what they've eaten and still experience a huge amount of hunger, even after they've eaten two full dinners, you know, two big plates packed full of food. So, you know, just things like that from decades ago actually showed us that the mind you know, the, the kind of psychological processes are so important for regulating appetite. Um, there is the fact that they don't, can't remember what they've eaten, so they don't have the expectation of feeling full. And sure enough, then they, you know, feel really hungry. So, you know, but the, yeah, the the idea here, I think, is that when you're dieting, you could have, you know, probably two kinds of mindsets. And I think the one that's most common for most people is this kind of scarcity mm. mindset of deprivation. Um and I think it's almost encouraged in our culture. It's like if you're losing weight, you're almost trying to punish yourself. I think, you know, maybe because we're fat phobic, people see that when they go on a diet, it has to be this kind of act of penance, um, or like penitence, where they have to punish themselves. So, you know, the diet foods that we often pick, we pick only because they are low calorie. Um even if they're quite bland and unappetizing, and this is reflected in the labeling as well, you know, when you buy a diet food, like if you buy like a health shake, it's not really gonna emphasize the delicious flavors, you know, within that shake. It's just gonna be like, you know, only 200 calories. Um, Well, that's, you know, that's giving people some information that they need, but it's creating this mindset of scarce, of deprivation. And yeah. what happens when you have the mindset of deprivation is that the body um, is, you know, it thinks it's not going to have enough resources. So mm. it starts to be, so it kind of does things like slows down your metabolism. So you don't waste energy because it's not sure that you're going to have enough to get through the day. And it, you know, it stimulates the hunger hormone it, yeah. um, increases the expression of the hunger hormone ghrelin yeah. which stimulates appetite because it's like yeah. well you know in that shake you didn't get enough nutrients so you're gonna have to go out and find like find more foods really and you know that's the worst thing if you're dieting so you have this shake that probably does contain quite a few calories actually like it's meant to be enough to keep you going but then like it's stimulating your hunger so you go off then and like, um, you know, an hour, two hours later, you're getting these hunger pangs, you're more likely to snack. Like it, you know, it's, it's why it's so difficult to diet, basically. It's because yeah. like, you're, when your 
body's feeling deprived, like it actually wants food a lot more. Um, so the alternative is the mindset of indulgence. And that's where, mm. you know, you should still be like cutting calories, you know, to a reasonable degree, but you shouldn't sacrifice the pleasure within the food that you're having. So mm. you should, you know, in addition to like cutting the calories, cutting the, you know, fat or sugar content, you should still be looking for foods that are super satisfying, like intense flavors, you know, it might be like for me, even just like sprinkling like chili flakes on like, um, you know, the meal that I'm having just makes it feel more satisfying or having like really intense umami flavors, you know, from anchovies or whatever, like that um, can just make it feel like you're actually getting something really satisfying. And, you know, when you have this mindset of in indulgence, then the body's not going into this kind of mode where it's it's feeling it has to kind of slow down its um, energy output and like seek new food. It actually leaves you just feeling more satisfied throughout the rest of the day so you don't snack so much. Um, and so you yeah. still have the energy to do exercise and all of that. So yeah, really important. And there, you know, these beautiful studies showing this, like the, you know, I give the one of the, the milkshake study from mm -hmm. Yale University. Yeah. People ate exactly the same milkshakes, but they were labeled, one was labeled as this kind of sensor health shake that, you know, was very bland. The other one was indulgent, rich, creamy, you know, if chocolate flavored, you know, it really just brought out all of the things that would give people pleasure. And what you yeah. saw was that the hormonal responses for the two shakes, despite them being nutritionally identical, were very different. So one stimulated the hormone ghrelin, so they would feel more hunger later on, and the other one, you know, um, gave this mindset of indulgence, so they actually had like lower levels of ghrelin after eating it, and you know, they were could stay satisfied for longer. Yeah, uh, I found that uh, quite amazing. I, I I feel like not enough people know about that, but anyway. Mm. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. All right. Now, I wondered if 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 I was to ask you like the, the ultimate take out of this book for I guess for lay people everyday you know, let's call men's health readers, I guess, in this case, is that we all have an opportunity to reframe situations or scenarios that we encounter in our life in ways that could be advantageous for us. Yeah. That's what a men's health reader would, would draw out of it. But, and maybe everyone who reads it. But it, is it, um, I think you, yeah, you, used, you finished with the Hamlet quote. And um, I, I guess it is, ref, is reframing, I guess, the actual key application it really is i think reframing is the kind of fundamental kind of tool that is important for each of the expectation effects yeah. that i describe and so you know i can't emphasize this enough that it's not a, when you're reframing a situation it is not about denying the difficulty of what no. you're experiencing whether you're you know dieting or doing exercise or feeling stressed you know um or going through having an operation, like I'm not asking people to say, you know, this isn't hard, but it's also just to recognize that actually, um, there could be another way of looking at the situation that accepts some positive elements as well, or, you know, a potential for growth, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, we see that with stress. It's like, no one's saying that it feels great to be stressed, but actually, you know, it's there for a reason and you can benefit from it. Same with like um the doing a workout, like it's gonna feel tough, but it feels but when it feels tough, it's also doing your body more good. And just focusing on that element, the fact that it's helping you to grow, 
is what's so important. Um, you know, the same with some of the stuff from the uh, ways of applying the placebo effect in medicine, you know, like people undergoing heart surgery were given psychological therapy kind of before and after their surgery to help them to cope with, you know, the, uh, the immediate kind of after effects and to speed up their recovery. And it wasn't like getting them to believe that the their recovery was going to be like super rapid without any kind of challenges, but it was more just getting them to see that actually, you know, over this period, they could expect to see steady improvements to get them to kind of visualize those improvements to kind of map them out. Um, it was just kind of, it was reminding them of why the surgery was important, how it was meant to work and helping them to understand what was gonna to happen to their bodies within yeah. that period. So again, you know, just reframing the surgery, which was really scary, but kind of reminding them of how the recovery would make it worth it essentially. Yeah. One thing I found is that a lot of the, like reframing, like that uh, tool or skill, uh, I felt like a lot of things, people perhaps like elite athletes or just very high performers, maybe, I don't know, let's say neurosurgeons, but I guess I've, I thought of athletes, uh, people who are actually doing a lot of these things, either they might have talked to a sports psychologist and be doing it already, um, or they just did it innately, but they... They might already see stress as a, a sign that they're ready to play. I think you say this in the book too, that, you know, they interpret. So perhaps those kind of people are already doing this. And so I felt like sometimes, like in the book, that you're taking stuff that might be happening at the elite level and, every, like, I guess lay people may also be able to apply the same tools. Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true, actually. Like, I still think maybe even amongst the elite, you know, athletes for example some some might be applying reframing more than others actually like uh, I think maybe you could see that even in uh you know like if you're watching like a tennis match or something and one player seems to fall to pieces whereas I think someone like if you watch like Serena Williams especially yeah. like at her peak she could have been like you know it could have been match point for the other player and she still manages to pull it back and then to win an extra two sets at the end yeah. because i think she was excellent at being able to reframe kind of the pressure she was under in a way that was beneficial to her so you know i think that you know it could be that for some elite athletes that really is their secret to success but yeah, yeah. i think you're you're right that in general it's going to be more common amongst elite athletes but the thing that really struck me was that actually you know it is really important for these people but like for, you know, the everyday person who is struggling with their fitness, for example, actually, that's in a way, I think it's even more important than mm. those people, because, you know, if you can turn yourself like, like I did from being someone who didn't really enjoy exercise to someone who like, actually loves doing it. And, you know, like going to the gym now is like the best part of my day, mm. then that for the long term effects of that for me, are like going to be so important for, you know, protecting me from cardiovascular disease, ensuring that I can, you know, enjoy good health for like a, you know, for the rest of my life. So yeah, I really think actually it is, it's kind of using these tools that the elites have been using and applying them, you know, for just the everyday person that's so powerful. Yeah. A lot of people, including myself, and I guess the idea for this story for me was kind of revolved around the word expectations because as I said earlier, I had thought about writing a story about the, the placebo effect and using that, applying that in different ways. But when I started investigating or looking at this story, there was a word expectation that 
because I've always, I guess, you know, I use the phrase, and many people do, that life is expectation management um, and yeah. that, uh, you know, so keep your expectations low in order to be pleasantly surprised. Um, I often use that that mindset with movies. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. That was actually my uh, impetus for this story was my experience with movies. And given now after reading your book and, and for you having worked on this book, I mean, how, how would do you regard that approach now? perhaps compared to maybe before do you mm, like yeah I'll let you answer for yeah because I do think I can see the logic behind like I, I guess that's like defensive pessimism yeah. almost I, and it's like this idea that you you know expect the worst and you can only be you can only be pleasantly surprised but you know that only works I think if you if that only that's only kind of purely rational if you assume that expectations don't actually affect the outcome. And I, I think, like, from all the research I reviewed in my book, that actually, you know, we know that expectations do affect the outcome. So, so yeah, I, you know, I used to be a pessimist myself, absolutely. Um, and so I wouldn't say now that I'm, like, this kind of um, Pollyanna kind of optimist who's always kind of seeing the absolute best in everything. But I think it's more just bringing yourself up to some kind of sweet spot in the middle where you have more of an open mind about kind of um, the situation that you're facing. So there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the, and I think it's healthy to acknowledge the worst case scenario, but you don't want to solely focus on that. You also want to kind of keep your mind open to all of those other elements. So through reframing to recognize that actually, you know, what you're going through might actually have some kind of benefit for you or might be necessary for you to achieve the growth that you want. You know, it's that kind of thinking. Um, so it, I'd say like reframing, like you said, is that the kind of lesson of the expectation effect. I also think the other lesson is just to avoid catastrophizing, which I mentioned earlier when I was saying, you know, I've got this cold and I could catastrophize that. I could be like, I could start to think, well, like the whole of today is going to be a write-off. I can't meet my deadlines. You know, my call, my mind, I could have, been expecting this call to be really to go really badly because I you know I don't feel like mentally 100% um so that is catastrophizing like always seeing the worst case scenario and going into this spiral of negative thinking where you imagine step by step things getting worse and worse um and I think so much of like the expectation effect is actually you know so many benefits can be achieved just from avoiding catastrophizing so just like keeping your mind open to the possibility that you know Quite objectively, there is no reason to assume that all of those things are inevitable. And it's just to realise that actually, you know, say when you're feeling under the weather, well, I actually like, you know, you still have a huge amount of mental resources that you can use. Like, there's every reason why you can still perform like nearly at your best, even if you're feeling under the weather. And it's just trying to remember that fact rather than just assuming it's always going to be awful. Yeah. it actually reminded me, I recently wrote a story on blushing and um, mm. it was kind of uh, the blushing. I also used that, that Hamlet line in that story because <laughs> yeah. so much of blushing is uh, for the people who suffer is the perception of it or, or then they start anticipating that they're going to blush in those situations. So I felt that was a parallel. But that's the thing about this whole expectation field is I feel like a lot of things I've kind of, well, and you might have, you probably felt that too, but you've touched on in other stories or other things that 
um, tie back into this. Like, it, I feel like it is a something that uh, it's kind of been there in the background. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. But no, I totally agree. It's, so it's something that, like, I, I was quite pleased to do with my book, I think, was to tie together all these strands that, like, um, I don't think anyone else had connected, like, all those areas yeah. of research before. But like you say about blushing, like, um, you know, what we forget, because I used to be a terrible blusher, and, like, yeah. totally what we forget is that <laughs> it's a useful signal, but actually what it demonstrates is, like, honesty and... Yeah the fact that you're sensitive to social norms. And so when other people see you blush, they often think much better of you than if mm. you were like um, very cold, you know, and didn't show any sign of emotion. So yeah, I think I think that's exactly what the message of my book is that, you know, something like blushing can feel unpleasant, but often there's like a positive benefit to it as well. And it's just to, we've got to try to remember the positive side of things as well as the negative side. Yeah. Um... Just on uh, how I mentioned before about movies, do you think that uh, expectations can have any application in appreciation of art or something like a movie? Or is is that where there an objective reality may, or subjective reality, or something, you know, it doesn't quite translate. Like it's more of an uh, intrinsic experience rather, I don't know. No, I think it totally is relevant actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it reminds me like of those studies I mentioned in the book about, you know, people <laughs> like wine experts um, oh, yeah. judging, you know, the flavours of wine. And it's like, if you, you know, chill red wine and blindfold them, then they'll assume it's white wine and, you know, taste, you know, all of the flavours they associate with white white wines. Um, you know, if you give someone a bottle of cheap wine but told them it had a really high price tag they'll think it's kind of much more richer flavored and you know what's happening there is this prediction machine is creating the you know it's, it's creating a simulation of what it thinks the wine is going to taste like and then that simulation is then actually changing the way it processes the sensory data to bring out the richer notes and I think exactly the same thing is happening with artwork or you know with a uh, film it's like you know if you're told that a film is created by this kind of great auteur, you know, you might, the kind of rougher parts of the film, you know, like the rough edges to it, you might think, you might see that they were there intentionally, you know, that they were making a statement. If you were told it was directed by, you know, someone you really didn't rate, um, then you you would be much more critical of those things, I think. You would interpret them as being flaws in the film, and that's going to change your whole appreciation. So, yeah. you know, the prediction machine is determining kind of you know where you place your attention and how you interpret what you see as well as changing the sensory data itself and you know all of that is important in the appreciation of art um so yeah it's but like you said it is almost like a form of confirmation bias in this case yeah what would you say are the limits of expectation as an agent for personal transformation mm. so i think like it is important to acknowledge the limits and you know I think I've had a small handful of people who have maybe read the blurb for my book, but not read the book. And they assume I'm saying that like, um, you can cure cancer with the power of your mind. And I'm not saying that at all, because it's like, you know, the expectation effects I'm describing all have like, well documented physiological or psychological mechanisms through which your expectations will bring about change. And there's, you know, no known way that 
you know, you could shrink a tumour just with the power of your mind. And that, you know, the evidence points that up, that actually positive thinking about cancer treatment, you know, is not going to change your survival. Although it might may well, you know, things like reframing may well determine how well you tolerate treatment, but they're not going to change your survival, you know, so it could change your experience of it and, you know, how how you cope with it, but it's not going to change your survival, basically. So that is, you know, one of the limits is that, like, positive thinking isn't just going to, like, cure you of a terminal illness that you already have. So, you know, I'm not claiming miracles. I think that like, we have to be very careful that, you know, when we're talking about expectations, that there are plausible mechanisms by which it could bring about the positive outcome. Um, and then more generally, you know, I think with things like um, performance in the gym, for example, like changing your expectations, like, you know, really will change your experience and your performance, but like, it's not gonna help you to achieve like miracles straight away. So just imagining that you're Michael Phelps isn't gonna mean that you can swim as well as him, like in the first, you know, the first time you get in the water. Um, like that should be obvious, but I think it's worth saying. Um, so, you know, when yeah. I'm talking about reframing your views of exercise, it's much more being, you know, still being realistic about what you can achieve and recognising that actually, you know, for any great achievement, like, it's really inevitable that you are going to have to go through some kind of learning curve, like step by step. Um, and to recognise that it's your expectations about the trajectory that's ultimately important. So rather than just thinking you can go from like uh, zero to hero, you know, without putting in the effort that we know is necessary to be an elite athlete. So yeah, yeah that's what expectations can absolutely help. They can ease the process. I almost feel like they're pulling, taking the brakes off of your performance. Mm. So, yeah. you know, you're making progress more quickly and that's really valuable and shouldn't be underestimated, but it's not gonna, you know, it's not the only solution. It doesn't mean that you can get away with not doing all the work that we know is necessary. All right. I just got one one last question. Um, what, why did you decide to write this write this book? Mm, yeah, I mean, so I guess you know, as a science journalist, I had been um, fascinated by the placebo effect, and you know, I had written about it pretty often. Um, but then it was really when I came across the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect. Um, as you know, it's the negative expectations creating sickness um, or amplifying sickness. And, you know, it's a strange coincidence, but I had a personal experience of that while writing a piece about the nocebo effect. And I, you know, had been going through a period of depression, was prescribed these kind of very standard antidepressant pills. And my doctor just happened to tell me that I was, um, that one of the side effects I could expect would be like really bad headaches as a result. Yeah. And, you know, next day, you know, as soon as I started taking them, I had like these really, you know, really bad headaches that were, you know, quite debilitating like stopping me kind of being able to, you know, work at my best, I guess. Like it felt, you know, like a very sharp pain, you know, like a pickaxe through the skull kind of sharp pain. Yeah. Um, but then while I was researching that piece, I came across, you know, the fact that actually loads of drug side effects, especially things like headaches are actually caused by a nocebo effect. It's your doctor giving you that warning makes it much more likely that you're going to experience the side effect. Um, and we know there's a physiological mechanism there that actually the negative expectations can do things like changing the dilation of your blood vessels, which can kind of change the pressure within your skull that could contribute to the pain. And so, you know, recognizing that fact helped me to reframe the pain, essentially. So, you know, just recognizing that it might 
it might not be inevitably a part of the taking this following this course of treatment and that actually maybe it was my expectations and I had some control over those expectations that just like relieved the pain amazingly so you know I think I discovered that in the morning and then by the afternoon or evening like the pain had almost completely vanished and mm. you know the experience was very powerful for me because the pain I had been suffering it wasn't imaginary I mean like I wasn't malingering or you know like um it felt identical to any other headache I'd ever experienced in my life um yeah. and so that you know just made me realize that how powerful expectations could be in shaping our experiences and then you know I started collecting all of this other research and I guess you know I built this huge file with hundreds of references and it was then when I discovered the research on age beliefs and how that shapes um our longevity that I just saw that there was this kind of really big narrative that I could write about and that it could have a really big impact on people's lives you know right. it could actually shape how long they live um and so yeah that was when I thought like actually I want to tell this story um the best way I can for a book yeah oh I, I can't I thought it was an amazing amazing book um thank you <laughs> all right David thanks very much for your time and uh yeah I, your day goes better than expected or even though you're <laughs> thank you thank you yeah no I really appreciate your interest have a good evening uh yeah take care thanks Dave. Bye. Bye. For more from Men's Health, pick up a copy of our latest issue. You can find it on newsstands or online via Apple News Plus. Visit us at menshealth.com.au and follow us on Instagram at menshealthau. See you next time.